high. That we got a little bit, we got to coordinate a little bit better than what we've been doing, uh, because the gals go till 8:30, and uh, we're usually out of here by 7:20. Is <laughs> you know I don't have a whole lot of content. I mean, I mean you knew that already, didn't you? Uh, we've been going till about 8:15 or so, and what we're going to do is. Uh, we're officially going to go to 8.30. Now, if some of you guys have to leave, that's fine. Um, but um, uh, what we're going to do afterwards is we're, is we're going to do some prayer stuff. We're going to probably break you up a little bit. And uh, we'd love to have you stay. I hope you stay. Because uh, you know what? We need prayer. Uh, I need it. You need it. Um, we're not going to make anybody uncomfortable. But I'm just telling you in advance, I'm not going to drop it on you at the end. And uh, so we'll talk about that some at the end. But I just wanted to kind of tell you that's where we're going. So you won't be totally surprised when we, uh, when we get there. All right? Yeah? Does that mean the supreme being is, is a she? Does that mean the supreme being is a she? <laughs> so why, why, why did the supreme being say the girls need to get out at 8.20? Well, the Supreme, no, it wasn't a woman who said that. See, you know what? I can tell you've, already, you've split a church before, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. Tom, you know, Thomas Watson said there's a devil in every church. You know that? No, I don't know the answer. I just know we're going to try and coordinate. And we have talked about, and we've done that before. We've had deals afterwards, and we prayed, and then, uh, so anyway, we're working it out. That's all. But it wasn't, it wasn't a, by the way, it wasn't a gal who said that. It was, it was on high. <laughs> and women aren't on high in this church. Men are. Don't, do we have women elders in this church? No. That answers your question. <laughs> this is a Bible church. All right. Well, let's pray. Because my wife told me to do this. <laughs> Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can laugh and that we can uh, uh, enjoy life. We thank you, Lord, that we can uh, have humor. Uh, you invented humor. You invented laughter. It comes from you. You're not stodgy. You're, you're not uh, displeased when we laugh and enjoy ourselves. Uh, you, you have told us that we are to be joyful people. If anyone should laugh, if anyone should have a good time, it's us. And so we thank you for that gift. We also thank you, Lord, for truth. We thank you for truth that uh, underscores us when life is not funny. We thank you for the truth that uh, tells us about you and your character when life is hard and life is difficult. And we think about the Dukes who uh, had a dream of having uh, these children, and then one has died, and they are, uh, they are stretched financially, and they are uh, hurting emotionally because of the loss of this one baby. And I'm sure with the other one, there are still many issues physically. So we pray for them. We pray, Lord, that, uh, that they would know that you are near to the brokenhearted and that you save those who are crushed in spirit. We pray that they would sense, not just know, they, they need to know that you're there, but I pray that they would sense it. That there would be a, uh, 
there would be an awareness of the Comforter, of the Holy Spirit. Um, there are guys in here that are hurting as well. Um, different situations, different um, pressures, different issues that we're dealing with and that uh, we're looking straight in the eye at these things. And they're not humorous. So, Father, we, we come to you with all of these issues. We cast our anxiety upon you because you care for us. We thank you for this guy, Nehemiah. We're going to get to know him. We thank you, Lord, for his example and for his model, for his life, uh, for, uh, for the drive that he had, for the fire that was in his gut. Uh, help us to learn from him. We, uh, we ask you to... Uh, we ask you to give us teachable hearts. We never look, want to look at the scripture without the teachable spirit. It'll make us cold. It'll make us, uh, it'll make us rigid, and we don't want to be that way. So minister to us tonight, Lord. Give us what we need, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, leadership is always the issue. When it comes to a family, Leadership is the issue. When it comes to uh, your work environment, uh, leadership is essential. When it comes to uh, a nation, leadership is essential. It's, uh, it's remarkable, you can walk into a bookstore today and they will have an entire section of books devoted to leadership. I, I was just scanning my library at home in my study and uh, I was just looking at the books I've got on leadership, and I've got, I didn't count them, but I, I, I got, I, I've got to have somewhere between 100 and 200 books on leadership. Uh, it's a hot topic. You know, we've got all these, and, and it's sort of a fad right now. The leadership secrets of Attila the Hun. Um, or the leadership, or Jesus, CEO. It, it's like they're, they're going after any provocative title that they can find to hook you and get you to buy that book. Uh, Nehemiah didn't write a book about leadership. He just lived it. He just did it. It just, um, it just flowed out of his life. Um, Nehemiah was a unique guy. There was something about him that, um, uh, that, that was divine. Richard Ellsworth Day has written this, and, and I think it applies to Nehemiah. It would be no surprise if a study of secret causes were undertaken to find that every golden era in human history proceeds from the devotion and righteous passion of some single individual. This does not set aside the sovereignty of God. It simply indicates the instrument through which he uniformly works. There are no bona fide mass movements. It just looks that way. At the center of the column, there is always one man who knows his God and knows where he is going. Um, one writer has said that uh, men are God's method. God works through men. When you study church history, you don't study a history of committees do you? You study a history of men. 
when you study church history, you don't, uh, you don't, well, who do you study? You study Martin Luther. You study um, uh, John Calvin. You study the Wesley brothers. You study George Whitfield. You study men who were men in a particular age, in a particular time, uh, men who launched movements because God starts with men. Uh, not all of us are those kinds of men. Not all of us are uh, upfront visible leaders, but, uh, but we're all leaders. If, if you're a man, you're a leader. If you're a husband, you're a leader. If you're a father, you're a leader. Every family is a small civilization, and somebody's leading it, and it better be you. There are a lot of people. It's amazing to me how many people want to lead my family. It's amazing to me how many people want to lead my kids. My kids are up and out of the house. I've got one who's a senior in high school. He'll be out and, well, he may be out next week. Oh. No, that's just a joke. No, Josh, Josh is doing great. He'll be out in May. We were talking about that this afternoon and the college and all that. And, you know, how we're, you know, which ones is going to be and all. We're sorting that through. When my kids were small, there were a lot of people that wanted to lead my kids. But it's my job to lead my children. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of people that want to uh, even tell my kids about sexuality. You know, it's amazing to me how many fathers don't want to talk with their children about sex. Well, why don't you run them down to Planned Parenthood and drop them off? They'd love to talk to your kids about sex. They'd love to talk to your kids about abstinence. Planned Parenthood defines abstinence as non-penetration. Is that who you want leading your kids? Not who I want. It's your job to lead your kids. It's your job to lead your family. Every family is a small civilization. Uh, so we're different kinds of leaders. We have different assignments from God. We have different posts that God has assigned us to. It may be large, it may be small, but the fact of the matter is you're a leader. That's why this guy Nehemiah is, is worth taking a look at. That's why we're going to spend some time watching this guy and learning from him how it is that he does what he does. Um, you, you can teach leadership, but the best way is to see it. Um, how do you become a leader? I, I think the best way to become a leader is to see a leader. Husbands, how many of you guys are husbands? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Uh, I haven't seen this company for a while, but there used to be a company called CyberVision. And the guy who started that company, they used to advertise constantly in American Airlines, that magazine. And the whole thing, uh, they had a CyberVision thing on golf, they had a CyberVision thing on bowling, they had a CyberVision thing on, you name it, the sport, they had a CyberVision tape on. And the guy who came up with the whole method of CyberVision it happened when he was in college. And what he was doing was he was, just, he was just, you know, hanging out watching TV, and there was nothing on. There was this bowling tournament on. The guy was just watching bowling. And, and, and suddenly, he, I mean, he's, this guy was unbelievable. Both guys were unbelievable that he was watching. And they were in the finals of some tournament. And for some reason, he, just, he, he started watching that guy and, and noticed that he went through the same procedure every time he would step up and roll the ball. And then he really started watching him closely. Started watching his elbow, 
started watching his hand. Just noticed some basic things. And what he did, he started, he started zoning in on this one guy. And after 30 minutes of watching him, watching his elbow, watching his hand, watching his release, this college kid went down to the local bowling alley, rented some shoes, got a ball, a ball. He'd never bowled over 160 in his life, and he rolled 235. That's how he started. That's a true story. That's how he started the company. The whole premise of CyberVision is doing it just as the expert. You hold your elbow just as the guy who knows what he's doing holds his elbow. Husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church. See, that's leadership. So, what's your leadership position? What's your post? Well, um, we talk about mentoring today. We, uh, mentoring's a good thing. You just want to make sure you have a right mentor. And you know, you're never too old for a mentor. You're never too old to learn. You're never too old to improve. You're never too old to get better. You're never too old to get better with people. Uh, you're, you're never too old to get more understanding of your wife. You're, no, you're never too old to be more approachable with your kids. If you think you are, you're pretty much on the shelf and you're finished. You see. So there's room for improvement in all of our lives. Uh, that's why we're going to look at Nehemiah. And again, Nehemiah doesn't give a whole, he doesn't lay out all these principles. Well, guys, here's my secrets of leadership. You don't see that here. It's not like buying a book at Barnes & Noble. You just see it flowing out of the guy's life. What you've got with Nehemiah is, in a sense, something you've got with this guy that you don't have with too many other guys in the scripture. You kind of got a flowing biography of this guy's career. Because we're going to see him throughout this book. We're going to see him in transition. We're going to see him make some job changes. We're going to see him make some uh, different career uh, decisions and choices. Uh, he faces different challenges. But at each juncture, uh, leadership is required, and a different principle is required. Uh, this guy had a passion for God, and this guy knew God. He, he's, he's fun to watch. Uh, you can pick up things from this guy. So what is leadership? Well, my gosh, there's all kinds of different ways to, to define it. Um, let me give you a couple. Here's a classic one. Harry Truman said, a leader is a person who has the ability to get others to do what they don't want to do and like it. It's pretty good. Uh, John Mott said, a leader is a man who knows the road, can keep ahead, and can pull others after him. Uh, Lord Montgomery said, leadership is the capacity and will to rally men and women to a common purpose. The leader must have character which inspires confidence. Um, well, one of the things that we're going to see in the life of Nehemiah, and you'll see it in any authentic leader in the life of Scripture, is the importance of character. Now, you, you understand, don't you, that our world is screwed up. You, you understand that we live in this quote-unquote postmodern civilization. Postmodern simply means there is no absolute truth, there is no absolute right and wrong. That's what our culture is all about. You can't say that's right or wrong, absolutely. You, you, you know, spend 40,000 bucks to send your kid to Harvard or Stanford or University of Texas or any secular state school, and they're going to have drilled into them there is no absolute truth. 
Kind of makes you wonder why you're spending that money, doesn't it? See, to, you're sending them there to get an education. They're not going to get an education. They're going to get an indoctrination is what they're going to get. You see? We live in a world where there is no absolute truth. Absolutely. <laughs> except, except. I can tell you're not educated. <laughs> See, if you are ed educated, you know that's just a bunch of whatever you want to insert. That's absolute total foolishness. Um, our culture says there is no absolute truth, except a woman's right to choose. That's absolute. Evolution is absolute. That homosexuality would be genetic, that's absolute. They got a few others. And they're wrong. Um, this book is the absolute truth. This book is the book that is above every other book. This book is, is the word of God. Uh, there is no other testament of Jesus Christ. <coughs> this is it, plain and simple. So we look to this book. And in an age where we are told there is no truth, we feed on the truth. And uh, we live on the truth. And uh, we chew on it, and we uh, chew it again, and we digest it, and we consider it, and we think about it, and we seek to apply it. Let's turn to Nehemiah. Let's meet this guy, Nehemiah, a man who was a leader, a man who um, a man who had character in his leadership. If you're in Psalms, if, you find, if you're not sure where Nehemiah is, that's okay. Uh, maybe you can find Psalms there in the middle. Go to your left. And if you're in Chronicles, go to your right. You'll find it. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, which would be the equivalent of our mid-November to mid-December. Okay? Uh, it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital. Susa, the capital. Susa was the winter palace of the king. Uh, th that's, that's where he was. Uh, the, palace was uh, the palace was a magnificent structure about the, 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 the whole uh, compound of the palace itself, including the buildings, was about 10 acres. Palace was about eight stories high, quite, quite a place, quite, a, quite an edifice. Now, what, what in the world was Nehemiah doing at the Winter Palace? Well, we'll see in just a little bit while he was, why he was there. Um, in fact, jump down uh, to the end of the chapter, and he'll just go ahead and tell us why he was there. He was at the Winter Palace of the king because he was the cupbearer to the king. Uh, Nehemiah was a Jew who had an extremely strategic position uh, in this nation. Uh, you know, every leader has a context. Every leader. When I say that, I, I would also add to it, every man has a context. In, in a sense, to understand a leader and to understand a man, you have to understand where he comes from. Um, What kind of relationship did you have with your father? 
Because, see, that, that marked you, and it marked me, it marks all of us. Now, some of us had great fathers. Uh, none of us had perfect fathers, but some of us had some great dads. They loved us, worked hard for us. They modeled truth for us. They modeled what it was to love Christ and, and to love a wife as Christ loves the church. If you've got that kind of heritage, you're a fortunate man. Uh, some of you don't have that kind of heritage. You have a dad that, well, some of you may not know your dad. Uh, your dad might have left when you were young or maybe when you were in high school. Uh, your mom and dad divorced. Um, you've been marked by your father. You've been marked by the life of your father. You've been, been marked by the character of your father. I think to understand a leader, you just don't look at the leader. You've got to back up. You remember when Lee Iacocca was the hottest thing going? He turned around Chrysler, got that big um, um, loan from the government, paid it back early. I mean, everything that guy touched was turning into gold. He had his biography out. It was selling like hotcakes. There was talk of him running for the presidency. Um, uh, there was a period of time where Iacocca was one of the most visible leaders in America, if not the world. I uh, remember picking up his biography. I remember getting on a plane in Boise, Idaho. I sat down, pulled his book, his biography, out of, uh, out of my briefcase. And I opened it up. I want to read about Lee Iacocca. And the very first words in the biography said this, my father, Nicholas Iacocca. Well, that's the place to start. And the, the, the first chapter wasn't about Lee, it was about his dad. And how his dad was an immigrant that came over from Italy, and his dad actually had a little hot dog cart, and that's how his dad did it. And he was up early and worked all day and busted his tail, and you know. And, and from his dad, he learned all these things about being a hard worker and providing for your family, and, you know, he just boom, boom. It wasn't about Lee Iacocca. It was about his dad. See, some of us have learned positives from our dad. Some of us have learned negatives, but we've all been affected. Um, Joseph Kennedy Jr. was supposed to be president of the United States. That was his dad's plan. Uh, if you read a biography of Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., and in fact, two came out in roughly in the same year. Let me ask you something. If you were to die and someone was to write a biography about you, would you have a suggestion for the title? Ever thought about that? That's worth thinking about. Because whether they ever publish a book about you or not, there's going to be a pithy statement that people are going to remember that would describe you. Two biographies came out, and you know, I'm talking about the father of Ted Kennedy, just for those of you who are younger, and you know, uh, Teddy was the youngest of the boys. It was Teddy, Robert, there was uh, JFK who became president, but the oldest boy was Joe, Joe Jr. Uh, these two biographies that came out about Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., the first one was called, now here, here's an amazing title, the first one is just a picture of, uh, of Joe Kennedy in his prime. He's probably 45. One of the wealthiest man, one of the wealthiest men in America. Just a picture of him, and the title over it is called The Sins of the Father. That's a tragic thing. 
Here's a biography written by a family friend, The Sins of the Father. The second biography, also written by a family friend, it shows him with his boys. And they probably range from, I'm going to say, 19 to 4. Teddy's there in, in, in short pants, and he's chubby. Um, not a lot's changed. <clears throat> but, I mean, this was taken a long time ago. So here's a great, great picture. Here's a dad with his four boys. Great picture. Boy, they look sharp, dressed to the teeth. You know what the title of this book is? Seeds of Destruction. Written by a family friend. That book is all about the character. When you read the story of Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., written by family friends, it'll shock you. The guy had no character. When John was just, what, 11, 12? Um, his dad, I, and I don't want to say the name because I'll get it wrong. I don't remember the, a movie star. His dad owns some movie studio in, in, in Hollywood. Well, his dad's got a thing going with one of these gals who was very famous, Gloria Swanson. I wanted to say that, but I wasn't sure. It was Gloria Swanson. He brings her to the family home. Um, it's very brazen, very open. Takes her out on the sailboat. Didn't know John, a little guy, 11 and 12, uh, hit on the boat. He was going to surprise him. So they're out sailing. You know, an hour goes by. He comes up, and they're having sexual intercourse on the deck. He sees his dad, and he throws himself in the water to kill himself. Dad had to go in and get him. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a known fact they would, he would share women with his boys when they got old, and they'd talk about it. This guy was a bootlegger. This guy was a gambler. This guy was, he was an appeaser. Here's where I'm going. He was an appeaser of Hitler. He was the ambassador to the court of St. James in England. Chamberlain's going over and trying to work a deal with Hitler to avoid war, and uh, Joe Kennedy's all about it. I meant to bring the book, and I didn't. I'd read it to you out of the book. But uh, Joe Kennedy wanted to make a deal. He thought we ought to make a deal. We ought to surrender. We ought to work out a deal with Hitler. Um, when the bombing started in London, he moved out of London and moved out into the suburbs. And, and <coughs> FDR said he was yellow and said he was a coward. And, and because he was such an appeaser and because he admitted, he wasn't worried even if Hitler came and took over America because he just bribed him like he's bribed everybody else. He wasn't worried about it. He had all the money. That, I mean, he figured he'd work it out. Well, his son, Joe Jr., interestingly enough, he died in World War II. It's a tragic thing. He died in a plane crash. He died um, making a flight he shouldn't have made in a plane that was fairly new with some uh, new equipment and some new uh, uh, weapons on it that were detonated by remote control. The weather was horrible. And from the accounts that are given, he was strongly advised not to make the flight. He went ahead and did it anyway. And there are many who feel that the reason he did that and the reason he lost his life is that he was trying to prove that he wasn't yellow. What he was trying to do was live down the reputation of his father, Teddy Roosevelt.
Teddy Roosevelt was a mover and shaker. Teddy Roosevelt made things happen. They had a thing on him last night in the History Channel. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, you know about the charge he led up San Juan Hill. San Juan Hill was no hill. San Juan Hill was a ridge. It was a rock. And, and, and they were shooting those American soldiers like, like, uh, like a shooting gallery. He led those guys up there. Guys were falling like crazy. He had some guts. He had political power. He had served in office. He didn't have to do that. Why did he go and do that later in life? You know why? Because his father, who should have served in the Civil War, didn't and had the money to pay someone to take his place and serve for him. There was something about Teddy Roosevelt that wanted to live down the cowardly act of his father. In some way, shape, or form, we're all affected by our past. Nehemiah was affected by his past. We're going to see it. Let's go back to Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital. All right, so he's at the Winter Palace. But Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. Now, 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 let's just stop right here and get our context back from last week. Last week, we did a whole history of the Old Testament. Um, what has happened is this. Uh, Nehemiah, who is a Jew, is not living in Jerusalem. Uh, he is living in Persia. Uh, because for years and years and years, the kings of Israel refused to give leadership to the nation in following the Lord. They went after the idols. God warned them through the prophets. Here and there, you'd have a good king in the southern kingdom, uh, which was Judah. The northern kingdom went into captivity from Assyria. The southern kingdom lasted longer. Finally, they were taken into captivity. When they were taken into captivity, that's when Daniel was taken into captivity. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, three Hebrew children, were taken into captivity. They've been in captivity now for 70 years. But Zerubbabel has returned because Cyrus the king allowed him to return, and he rebuilt the temple. Then a while later, Ezra went in there to restore the law. So they're letting the remnant go back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem has, was in shambles. Jerusalem was devastated. This magnificent, glorious city that was a wonder of wonders with the temple. I, I mean, it would you, you couldn't imagine it. It would take your breath away. It was devastated because of the sin of the leaders. So this guy's been in exile with all the other Jews. So... Uh, He's born and raised in exile. He's born and raised a refugee in another country. But he loves his nation. He loves his people. And so his brother shows up. And apparently his brother and this, these other guys had been to see the remnant in Jerusalem. Look at verse 2. He says, And some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. So he just asked them, Hey, what's going on over there? What's happening? And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now, note his reaction. Now, it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
why did he have why did he have such a reaction to this? Uh, he, he had a reaction because he was a leader. He had a reaction because there was a part of him that was in Jerusalem. There was a part of him that was their city, that was their land, that was their nation. It had been a glorious nation. It had been a it was a nation of covenant with Almighty God, yet they had broken covenant. And there was a remnant that was going back. They had rebuilt this temple, nothing like Solomon's temple, not even close. I mean, my gosh, Solomon had this thing, and, and they'd gone back and basically got a, got a double-wide mobile home kind of thing. Uh, I, it was like that. I mean, it was nothing near what it used to be. The glory and grandeur, they would never have again. Uh, there was a piece of him there. And when he heard that those people weren't doing well, when he heard that there was a problem, when he heard that there was difficulty there, uh, he wept. He was, you know what? He was sick to his stomach. This, this guy was grieving inside. Now, why was he grieving? Because that, there was his heritage. That was his lineage. There was, there was a covenant promise made with God, and there was hope. When they went back, hey, they had this temple. It wasn't, it wasn't the temple it used to be, but they had a temple. And now, guess what? The walls are down. Now, this is something that had happened recently. There must have been some kind of attack. There was some, now, what's the big deal about this? Well, there's no way to protect the temple. And the treasury, this small treasury now that Israel had, nothing like it used to be, but the treasury they had was in the temple. In other words, they're just hanging out there naked with no protection. This guy is a leader, and he's grieving over the fact that the temple of God, which God was gracious enough to allow them to go back and start rebuilding their nation, they're totally unprotected, they're totally vulnerable. Something needs to be done. This guy begins to weep. But to understand this guy, you've got to understand that he understands his history. He begins to pray to God, and I just, well, we'll do the prayer next week. But I just want you to note verse 6. Because what he is doing, he says, Let thine ear now be attentive, and thine eyes open to hear the prayer of thy servant, which I am praying before thee now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servant, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Catch this. I and my father's house have sinned. See, to understand Nehemiah, you just don't look at Nehemiah. And he knew that. See, the reason this guy was weeping was not over just the fact that he's one guy in the nation, but he's, when he says his father's house, he's just not talking about his dad. He's talking about the lineage on up. We've blown it. What kind of lineage do you have? What kind of heritage do you have? Spiritually. Um, you know, I'm grateful that my uh, grandfather, my paternal grandfather, uh, when he was in high school, he was, he was a Roman Catholic. And he was walking by a storefront in a little town in Virginia, and he heard some music and just got and walked in and heard the gospel and came to Christ. That changed, that changed not only his life, it changed my life. Changed his life. Changed my dad's life, changed my life, changed my kid's life. You see? Uh, on, my, um, 
on my mother's side, you, you've got Christians, I mean, it's, it's amazing how far up they go. What, what, kind of, what kind of lineage do you have? What kind of heritage do you have? Uh, Nehemiah, we, we don't know specifically about his, his genealogy and who they were and where their spiritual condition was with the Lord. We don't know. But, but I'll tell you this, he's confessing sin, you see? Nehemiah, you know what Nehemiah, I think this guy wanted to make an impact for the kingdom. You know, here's the good news. You don't have to have, you don't have to be the 40th generation of Baptist preachers to, to, to make an impact for Christ. You know, some of us, you know what a, you know what a history is, you know what a family heritage is, heritage is, it's a chain. It's just a real long chain. Um, a, a chain is comprised of individual links. So here, here I am with my wife, Mary. In our family chain, in our family history, we're one link in the chain. My mom and dad are a previous link. My grandparents are a previous link. On, 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 on up. You see? And I've got Christians in my family chain. I'm grateful for that. Now, maybe you're sitting here saying, well, you know, Steve, gosh, I don't have anything like that in my family chain. I'm the first guy in my family to ever come to Christ. See, I don't have that heritage. I don't have that. Then you start it. You start it. You put a new link in the family chain. See, when we come to know Christ, behold, old things, old things have passed away. Become, behold, all things have become new. That's the great message of the gospel. You put a new link in the family chain. You don't, and then your kids won't have to deal with the stuff that you dealt with. See, it's a whole new ball game. That's, you know, we, we uh, Jonathan Edwards was probably <clears throat> the greatest mind ever produced in America. Uh, the encyclopedia, uh, encyclopedia, man, I can't talk tonight. The encyclopedia, the world book used to say that. <laughs> and so did the Encyclopedia Britannica. Used to say that Jonathan Edwards was the greatest mind ever produced in America. And they did a study of Jonathan Edwards' descendants. It's amazing, his descendants. I think he had, was it 11 children or 13? I don't remember. But uh, he was uh, a very studious man. Would spend basically he, his work was studying. He was a pastor. He'd study twelve hours a day, generally speaking. But he'd come home and spend an hour with his children and interact with them. They'd done a study of his descendants. It's amazing how many of them. They had vice presidents. You got U.S. senators. You got. I mean, it's it's quite college presidents. It's quite quite an impressive list. Um, you know what's remarkable to me about Jonathan Edwards? When you start with him and look at his descendants, you're very impressed. But his grandmother in Massachusetts uh, in the 1600s was an adulteress. The shame on that family was beyond belief. You didn't commit adultery in the 1600s in Puritan New England. You didn't do that, but she did. But you see, someone came along and put a new link in the family chain. See, we always start with John Edwards. Look at this wonderful family. Yeah, but go ahead, jump up two generations and see what you got. Someone put a new link in the generational chain. Someone was a leader. Someone began to lead their family. Now, we're understanding Nehemiah here, why he was the way that he was. All right? He had a history. You've got a history. But here's Nehemiah. And you guys still there? You guys still with me? I want to talk about Nehemiah for a minute. Because, you see, here's a guy that was in exile. He's born in exile. 
but we are told that he's the cupbearer to the king. Now, here's what we need to understand. That's a big deal. That's no, he was no middle-class government bureaucrat. The cupbearer to the king was right up at the top. You were in the inner circle. You were in the president's council. You were like the national security advisor. You had the king's ear. No one was closer to the king than the cupbearer. The cupbearer usually was a foreigner. It was usually someone from outside who didn't have a political agenda and was maneuvering. Um, that was a qualification. The, the reason they call him the cupbearer is because what the cupbearer would do, he had to be a trusted individual because he, when the food was brought to the king, you know, king's back, they're always trying to assassinate these guys. They're always trying to poison them. So the cupbearer would take the wine and sip it and taste it, check the food, digest it, and then and they'd watch him. The guy, if he, if he lasted 20 minutes, the king would eat. It had to be a trusted individual. But it was more, it was more than just being someone who, who tasted food. Let me, let me find this deal on, on being a cupbearer here. Because, listen to this. Cup bear, the cupbearer often was chosen for his, personal, um, for his personal character and winsomeness. And in ancient oriental courts, he was always a person of rank of importance. From the confidential nature of his duties and his frequent access to the king, he possessed tremendous influence. And the cupbearer also was the bearer of the signet ring, which was the king's personal seal. So when the king made a decision, they called the cupbearer, and he put that seal on there. Secondly, he was the chief financial officer. So you see, he was trusted financially. He was trusted legally. He was a man of, he, he was someone who the king had to know intimately, trusted, would dialogue with, would give input, would give advice, would give counsel. This is Nehemiah. He's a Jew serving a Persian king. What I want to know is, how the heck did he get that job? You're talking leadership here. I mean, this, this, is, this is major league stuff. How did he get that? See, this was his realm. This was his realm of leadership. I believe God appoints us to our post of leadership. And what I want to do here tonight, um, for the rest of our time, I want to give you three shots on leadership. I want to give you three principles on your leadership and on my leadership. Here's the first one. And I've already given it away. First principle is this. It is God who assigns us to our post. It is God who assigns us to our post. We don't know much about Nehemiah to this point in his life. After this point, we find out quite a bit about this guy. And we're going to follow his career. We're going to watch him. We're going to watch him shift from being a cupbearer to becoming a builder. And then he's going to become a governor. He's got some changes coming for him. But up until this point, we really don't know much about this guy, except we know this. He had a post. He had a post that God had given him that was extremely influ influential. Now, now, how did he get this post? Well, from a human standpoint, he must have had the gifting for the post. He must have must have known some people that were connected, in a sense. Again, I'm talking from a human standpoint. He had some kind of network. He knew someone who knew someone who knew someone. Um, 
there was some preparation that went into his life. There had to be some discipline. There had to be some, um, there had to be some achievement so that he would stand out and be able to be promoted among many others to get this influential position. I imagine he was a hard worker. Um, I imagine that somewhere in his life there were some disappointments and there were some setbacks. Um, now, why would I say that? I would say that because of the second principle. And my second principle uh, is basically this. <clears throat> it is God who oversees the process of our leadership development. It is God who oversees the process of our leadership development. Um, he just didn't become cupbearer to the king when he was 19. Now, we don't know what the chronology was. We don't know what happened. We don't know the corporate path that he was on. But he went through some things. Now, now how do we know? This? There's a process that God takes to make a man and to make a leader. This guy was serving in, in a very high government of, uh, 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 capacity. All right, now let's back off of Nehemiah. We don't know Joseph. Joseph became the number two guy in Egypt. In a time of great crisis, Pharaoh picked him because basically God had picked Joseph, and the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. And God sovereignly worked to get Joseph into that position to be the number two man in all of Egypt. What did Joseph have to go through to get there? I'm telling you this. I'd lay money down if I were a betting man that Nehemiah went through some of the same things. Because there is a formula that God uses to make a man. There is a formula that God uses to make a leader. There are no shortcuts. Um, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brother. You know what's interesting? As a kid, Joseph had these, he, I mean, he had had these dreams that these sheaves were bowing down to him. It was his brothers. Now, he wasn't, I mean, he was just a kid, so he told them. They kind of got hacked off. They started getting jealous. Uh, Joseph had a sense, to a degree, that, that God was going to do something. Uh, his brothers sell him into slavery. I mean, you talk about some disappointment. You talk about some difficulty. You talk about a setback. You talk about a failure. Uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph is put on the auction block. Joseph is, uh, is sold to a guy named Potiphar. I'm sure he started at the lowest level in this guy's house. Probably started cleaning latrines. But you know, there was something about Joseph. Let me ask you something. Do you think Joseph did a job halfway? I mean, what's your guess? I mean, we don't know. But what kind of worker do you think he was? I think he was a hard worker. Because, see, eventually he got to the top of the ladder in Potiphar's household. Do you, permit, do you promote guys that don't work hard? Do you permit, promote guys that show up two hours late and go home two hours early? Is that the kind of guys you promote? No. You promote guys that are there early and stay late. You promote guys that work hard when they're there. You, you promote guys that aren't doing personal business on the phone when they're supposed to be working. You, don't, you know what I'm talking about. See, we can figure out the kind of guy that Joseph was just by the fact that he got promoted. Yeah, you can rise certain places. You can con him for a while, but you can't con him to the number two position in Egypt. There was some substance. God oversees the process 
that makes a leader. One of the things that God does with guys like Joseph and Nehemiah and guys like us is, you know what God does? God tests us. He tests us. All along the path of your life and my life, here's what God's going to do. He's going to test you. He's going to, and it's just not a one test or a two test, all the way through. He'll test your integrity. He'll test your obedience. He'll test your humility. Um, see, there's got to be humility or God can't promote you. So what will happen is usually you're going to your, find yourself in a situation that you don't like. There's going to be a chapter of life that's going to be very, very difficult where you're not going to be appreciated, where you're going to work hard. People are not going to notice you. They're not going to appreciate your work. Other people will take credit. Uh, you're going to do the right thing, and you're going to be penalized. That's what happened to Joseph because Potiphar had this wife. I like to call her Predator, and she kept hitting on him. She wanted to sleep with this guy, but Joseph wouldn't do it. And she kept going after him, going after him. One day she gets him in a corner somehow, and to get out of there, he literally runs out of his pants. Uh, she cried rape, I'm sure. And next thing you know, Joseph is in a prison. Why is he in a prison? Did he do what was wrong? Did he sleep with her? No. He did what was right. That was a test. Oh, there will be a test of waiting. Of waiting. Joseph had to wait in the dungeon for two years. You see? Because God is testing our dependence on him. God is testing our trust in him for his timing and for his purpose in our life to be achieved. God wants to find men who are willing to wait for him and his timing. Men that won't bolt ahead. Men that won't be presumptuous in God. See, these, God, what, what, what's God doing? He's testing this guy. I'll guarantee you he did that in Nehemiah's life. We just don't know about it. Who would be the other guy we'd look to? Daniel. All right? Daniel wind up, wound up in an extremely high position. He was in exile. You know, you're talking just a generation or two before, um, before Nehemiah. Okay, you read Daniel 1, these young guys, these teenage guys, and they're the cream of the crop. They're brought in, and, and, and these Babylonians, these guys were smart because they'd find the cream of the crop. They'd get first-round draft choices. I mean, they just wouldn't go in and kill these young leaders. They'd go in and say, hey, let's just reprogram them. So they changed their names. They changed their culture. They changed their education. They changed their diet. But when it came to diet, Daniel said, hey, we can't eat that food. You know what that was? That was a test. Most of the other Jewish guys ate the food. It was easier that way. Daniel wouldn't do it. You know why? Because Daniel had character. Daniel had conviction. That was a test. Daniel and his buddies passed the test. The other guys didn't pass the test. You see? Now, they might have looked like leaders, but they weren't. They were just uh, Clintonian leaders. You getting what I'm saying? I don't want anybody to misconstrue what I'm saying. See? There's somebody who looked like a leader but had no character. I mean no character. I'm feeling better. <laughs> this has been around for centuries. Because, see, God tests the man. So you know what he's going to do? He's going to put you in a situation, and he's going to test if you'll stand for your biblical conviction. You see? And then what happens? You know what happens if you don't pass the test? There's no promotion. God doesn't work this like the public school system. 
You get to the end of the year, you can't read, they'll give you a PhD. Oh, you don't need to read, you've got great self-esteem. God doesn't do that. God says, here's the test. You don't pass it, you go back, you're going to summer school, pal. You see? You go to summer school as long as you want. But God's not going to promote you. God tests his men before he promotes them. Let me ask you something. You want the blessing of God in your life? Then quit screwing around with sin. Don't be a liar. Don't do, knock it off. You don't have to do that. Some guys are pathological liars. You know why they're pathological liars? Because they've lied all their lives. Say, man, I don't want to be that way. Okay, then the next time you lie to somebody, you know what you do? Spirit of God convicts you, and you better hope he convicts you, and you better hope you can feel it when he convicts you. When the Spirit of God convicts you, you don't want to be a liar? You don't want to give that heritage to your kid? Next time you lie to somebody, you know what you do? You just stop and say, you know what? That's not true. I'm sorry. I don't know why. I just lied to you. I can't believe I did it, but I did it. And you know what? I'm trying not to do that. Would you forgive me for doing that? You say, I can't do that. Yes, you can. See, how badly do you want to be a man of God? How badly do you want God's blessing on your life? How badly do you want to be a man of truth whose word can be his bond? See, when, when you'll take a radical, you say, see, that's pretty extreme. Yeah, I know it's extreme. But you remember what Jesus said, if your eye offends you, put on sunglasses. <laughs> if your right hand offends you, put it in a cast. It's not what he said. Hey, there's a time when you've got to cut sin off. See, I've had it with this stuff. I'm going to be a new man. The Spirit of God's within me. The power of God is in me. To do the power of God is in me to say to someone, you know what, I just lied to you. Man, I am so sorry. Would you forgive me? You say, oh, I can't do that. You can do it. They're going to think less of me. I don't think they will. I think they'll be shocked and appreciate your honesty. I do. And if they don't, who cares? Because Jesus knows. And Jesus sees it. You're not living for the applause of that guy anyway. You're living for Christ. See, this is leadership. This is what we're talking. This is what we need. See, God's looking to make men of character. He's looking with some guys who've got the guts to stand for truth. Guys weren't guys not not guys without sin. But when you mess up, when you you just say, hey, you know what? Gosh, I can't believe I did that. And it's genuine and it's heartfelt. People can tell when it's heartfelt. But there's a process that God takes us through. You know what it is? First Peter, uh, what is it, 5, verses 5 and 6 says, it's talking young men. It says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. See, there will be a test of humility. When, when you've lied to somebody and you tell them you've lied, you've just humbled yourself, haven't you? You're sure as heck not exalting yourself, are you? Uh-uh. You've just humbled. You've taken the lower place. Um, God looks for men who are willing to humble themselves. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And catch this, at the proper time, he will exalt you. At the proper time, what? Well, he will promote you because you've been tested. And you've gone through the fire. And see, God's looking for a guy he can put in a key position and God can trust him. I, hey, this guy's been fired. This guy, this guy has been through the heat. This guy has been through the blast furnace, and he didn't move. 
I'm going to use this guy. God's still looking for guys like that. You say, well, Steve, I'm no big-time preacher. You don't need to be a preacher. He's just looking for guys. William Wilberforce wasn't a preacher. William Wilberforce single-handedly stopped slavery in England, in the British Empire. It killed him doing it. But before he died, he saw the end of it. God takes us through chapters. You guys still with me? Oh, yeah? This wild stuff. That's good. Kindness and truth around your neck. That's good. Um, so God's assigned you to a post, right? Right. Okay. Now, some of you guys don't like the post you're in right now because you're not fulfilled. Uh, you're just marking time. It's not really using your gifts, whatever. whatever. But uh, right, You're there for a reason. Now, if you can legitimately change your circumstances, change them. But if God's got you there for a while, then humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and say, Lord Jesus, I want to learn everything you have for me in this situation. I want to learn it. I want to learn every lesson you've got. Don't, don't let me miss one of them. Help me to see them. Help me to learn. Help me to respond. Lord, help me to pass the test. That's how you pray in those situations. And you say, will I always be in this post? I don't know. But probably not. God usually takes a guy through a tough post because God's getting him ready for another thing. You say, well, well, how do I know when I'm relieved of this post? Well, you'll know. Well, how would I know? Well, they can, they can let you go. That's one way. Uh, they can fire you. Um, God circumstantially can move. You see? I've been reading this biography on Booker T. Washington. You know one of the interesting things? God oftentimes puts us in a tough chapter, in a tough situation that we hate, that we don't like. Why am I here? Because God's going to do something in your life here. Uh, Booker T. Washington, it is this amazing biography about this guy. But uh, he had a white father, didn't know who his dad was, but just you know, some white slave owner that impregnated his mother and you know, didn't care and just, just a, uh, a terrible thing. Uh, he, he's raised uh, he, he, his bed all, until, until he was probably in his late 20s uh, or early 20s. He just slept on rags. His mom would gather rags for a bed. That's all she could get. And he would sleep on rags. Uh, when when uh, the Civil War came to an end and they were set free, they moved to this little town where some slaves had gathered because they could work in these salt mines. It was horrible work. Uh, and he hated those salt mines. He hated it. This guy had a real love to learn. He wanted to learn how to read. He wanted to study. But he had to work in the salt mines to help his family. And he heard about this job with this lady. There was this, this lady, in fact, her husband owned the salt mines, and her name was Viola Ruffner. And he heard that she needed um, a young man to work in the home and do whatever needed to be done in the home. He thought anything's better than the salt mines. But he hadn't met Mrs. Ruffner. <laughs> and you read this. And he went to work for her, and he couldn't stand it. Because she was so exacting, 
And she was so demanding, and she was so thorough. Uh, she would have him sweep, and then she'd come in, and she would check the dust, and she'd make him sweep again, and then sweep again, and then sweep again. He couldn't take it. Finally, he just took off and found another job, and then they found out that he didn't know how to do that job, so they sent him back home. He went back to work with her again, hating every minute of it. And he, he could only take it for so long that he leaves, comes back. That happened six times. But he talks about, in this biography, he talks about that woman and how she pulled things out of him that he didn't know, he didn't know that he had. She gave him a, lo a love for order. She gave him a love for organization. She gave him a love for a job well done thoroughly the first time. She would make him sweep. She would make him clean until it was spot. Well, another chapter developed, he had to go to work in the salt mines again. He thought he was finished, he thought he'd be there the rest of his life. He was in the salt mines one day, he hears two black men talking about this school for slaves, freed slaves, called Hampton, Hampton School. And if you can get there, and if you pass the test, they'll let you in. And when he heard that, he said, I'm going to that school. He didn't know where it was. He didn't know anything about it. That became his goal. It took him a while. But he saved his money, and he starts heading to this school. Had to walk about 500 miles. By the time he shows up there, he hadn't eaten in days. Hadn't had a bath. He's dirty. He's just, he's exhausted. He's worn. He shows up, and here's the lady. She's the headmistress. And she looked at him, and she wasn't real impressed. And he knew he wasn't real impressive, but he's talking with her, and he's just hoping for an opportunity because they had more students wanting to get in than could. And so that day he's doing, he's just, she didn't tell him no, he's just there. He's doing whatever he can do. He's just around her. He just, finally she said to him, and he had heard about her. He knew she was tough. Finally she said, well, don't just stand there. Take this broom and go sweep out that closet. Go, I, I, go sweep out that recreation room, which had a closet. She didn't tell him to do the closet. She just said the rec room. He went in there, and he knew he was home free. Because <laughs> nobody could clean a room like he could. Nobody could clean, spotless clean, the way he could, because Mrs. Ruffner, who he hated, had taught him how to do it right and do it right the first time. And he was in there, and he was in there one hour, and two hours, and three hours, and four hours, and then he came out, asked her to come in, and she walked every square inch. Eaves, windows, sills, closets. She looked at him, and she said, welcome to the school. He looked back on that as one of the significant times of his life. Mrs. Ruffner. Who's the Mrs. Ruffner in your life? Huh? You know God's sovereign over the Mrs. Ruffners? He's sovereign. Booker T. Washington humbled himself. Took him six times. Because he's just like us. But he humbled himself. Let me give you the third principle. But kind of before I do that, see, some of you guys, 
You're in a tough spot. You're in a spot you don't want to be. You might be in a marriage you don't want to be in right now. So what are you going to do? Be like all the other wusses that leave? Huh? Any guy can, anybody can do that, especially today. Well, you know, Steve, it's really tough. Well, what did you think it was going to be? A rose parade? Huh? Well, it's really hard. I mean, it's really, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, husbands love your wives. What? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus got killed for the church. Jesus got beat up for the church. You've not gotten killed yet. Maybe your hopes have been killed. But God can resurrect those. I mean, you know what? You leave, God won't fix it. God can't fix it if you leave. You stay there. You stay the course. You be a man. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Are you having to work at a job that's so beneath you and you're so overqualified? You just stay there. God sees that. He'll honor you. You're swallowing your pride. He knows how hard that is on you. See, God sees these things, guys. He's testing you. This is no different than Daniel. It's no different than Joseph. He sees what's going on. You got a tough situation in your family, and you just want to punch somebody right in the chops? Don't do that. I think the Bible says that. <laughs> might be a brother-in-law. Might be some, You don't want to do that. You know, someone needs, someone needs to lead there. Someone needs to grow up and be a mature man. Someone needs to do it right. Don't give in to that temper. It's a test. He's testing you. You see? I'm telling you, Nehemiah went through this, guys. There are no shortcuts. Here's the last principle. It is God who oversees our promotions. Psalm 75, 6 makes that clear. Promotion doesn't come from human beings. Promotion comes from God. It doesn't come from the east nor from the west, but it comes from God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and at the proper time. See, what you think is the time probably isn't the proper time. But God, God's timing is impeccable. God's timing is unbelievable. I don't know if I've said this here. I, I, I don't think I have, because this just happened. Uh, when I covered for Chuck in August, one Sunday morning, I said, I mentioned that I'd been praying for something for three years. And I'd just been waiting on God. And uh, I was just waiting on him. I, I mean, I, I pray about it almost every day. And about six, seven, eight months ago, I decided, yeah, I said, you know what? I'm just, I quit praying about it. Not, not that I was mad or angry or bitter or anything, but I just, I just knew God knew about it. And instead of going, I, I would just, I would just, I would just say, Lord, you know. And you know, when you're ready, you're going to take care of it. I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to back off here. I'm just going to trust you, and thanks for all you've done for me. 
And um, just about the week before Christmas, God took care of it. He answered the prayer. And I've been thinking about that ever since he did. And I'm going to tell you this. I can see, I think now I can see a little bit why God waited. Because as a result of that prolonged period of my life, I personally, um, I can see an area that um, I, I think he developed over the last year and a half that wasn't there before. It was pretty weak. It's not real great now, but it's better than it was. If he hadn't answered that prayer back when I was asking him and just crying out to him, so Lord, do it now, do it now. See, see, he loved me too much to do it then. He knew what I needed. And when he was ready, I mean, bam, he took care of me. What was funny about that was about two weeks before, I got real down, and I became convinced he'd never take care of me. You know what would have been great? It would have been great if the Lord just, or, you know how it is, the Lord just said, hey, Steve, you know what? In two weeks, I'm going to take care of the whole thing. <laughs> but he didn't tell me that. So I just had to live off the promises until then. You see? Promises, he, he does tell us he's going to take care of it. What was that? It was a test. When God's ready, he'll promote you, and nobody can get in the way. Nobody can stop it. Nobody can thwart it. Your, great, your enemy is, is going to sign off on it. But he's going to check you out first. That's what he's going to do. Here's what I want to do. Uh, and I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. You're a first-time guy. We're glad you're here. Uh, I, I want to break up into like, let's say fours, fours or fives. And that way, just real quick, just tell some guys your name. Just say, here, here's a, and here's what I want to do. And, and we got five and a half minutes. If there's an issue, if, before we walk out of it, we're facing different stuff. If you got something in your life, and maybe you don't, don't feel any, this is no big pressure to you. We don't want to feel in that stuff. If you'd rather not just say, I'll take a pass. If you don't want to talk, if you don't have anything to say, just say, I'm going to pass tonight. No big deal. But let's give you an opportunity. There might be something going on, and one of the four guys has got something, and he'd say, hey, would you guys pray for me? Let's pray for each other. Galatians 6.1 says, bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Okay? You, okay? you guys okay with that? All right. Just go ahead. Let's break up. Get four guys, and somebody, and just introduce yourself. And just somebody say, hey, I got this. Would you guys pray for me? And then I'll close this in prayer in five minutes. Yeah. I'm Friday. I'm, I'm taking off work. Going down to Dallas or going to the seminary uh, to uh, Boone Howard. 